We are starting, though, talking about something that was announced just recently, and it has to do with pharmacists in this province having expanded powers when it comes to things like prescription refills without having someone go to a a doctor's appointment and get a prescription again from the doctor. But what is this going to mean as far as paperwork and additional duties for pharmacists? Well, joining us to talk more about this is Chris Chu, Vice President of Pharmacy and Healthcare Innovation at London Drugs. Thank you so much for being with us. Good afternoon, Jill. When you look at the expansion of powers for pharmacists, I know it's being welcomed by many, many people, patients especially. What will it mean, though, for the role and how the role of pharmacists change? Well, there's two uh, phases to this. The first one occurs uh, almost immediately on October the 14th is the official start date. Pharmacists have always been the experts in medication management, and um, we've been doing this for quite a while, but at least we've been going to be recognized for their duties. What will happen on October 14th is that we will be able to renew or extend or adapt prescriptions of uh, medications that people have been on and shown stable for at minimum six months, uh, for sure longer. So what happens is when a patient comes in and says that, oh, I can't see my doctor for three months because he's so busy, can you actually help me? We would be able to right away. Um, What we would do, for example, if it's a blood pressure medication, ask the patient if they've been reviewing their blood pressures on a daily basis, taking it at home, review those readings with them. And if it seems stable, then what we'll do is extend their prescriptions for that three months before they can go in and see their doctors. So that actually is quite a a change because of the fact that in the past, even what we do today is that if they cannot see their doctor, we actually have to fax the doctor to ask if that's okay before we can renew it. And it sounds like that will be a lot of of time saved by doing that. That's correct, uh, because we will be able to do that right in front of the patient right away. And then uh, the second phase is actually occurring in the spring of 2023 uh, through the College of Pharmacists, the College of Physicians, and the BC Pharmacy Association. We'll be working together to come up with a list of minor ailments that pharmacists will be able to prescribe for. So, for example, if you come in late in the evening, because, you know, it always seems to happen when, you know, it's late in the evening when it's difficult to try to get a hold of it doctor, or your family doctor, um, for example, if it's a urinary tract infection, you'd be able to go in to see your pharmacist. Um, the pharmacist would actually ask you a certain set of questions. And then if they deem appropriate, prescribe a certain antibiotic or other medications that would you be able to take right away. And then after that, once you do start taking it, follow up with you in three to five days to make sure it is working. And if it isn't, then at that point, we would definitely suggest to go see the doctor right away. And so that's coming in in the spring. Why the delay in bringing that in? If that's something that pharmacists are comfortable doing and able to do, why not bring it in sooner? We want to make sure we work collaboratively with all healthcare um, within the system. So, uh, as I mentioned, we were going to be working with the College of Physicians and as well too with the College of Pharmacists to ensure that that list is actually complete and that we can work together. On top of that, the pharmacists will actually have to make sure we go through some type of training in terms of the documentation that's necessary for it, um, change some of the legislation within our guidelines from the College of Pharmacists to make sure that we can do it. So, it will take some time to do that, uh, but we expect 
expect that uh, it will happen by spring of 2023. All right. And going back to the first phase, the earlier one that you said by the 14th, as far as renewing those prescriptions, is that something that it seems like pharmacists are are, are in that position? Even uh, I know a family member that was on a certain number of drugs, but again, drugs that, that they'd been on for many, many months. But it was actually the pharmacist that caught in the system and said, oh, wait a minute, you don't need to be on this one anymore. And and then it was followed up. It was followed up with the doctor and the doctor said, yes, you're absolutely right. You can stop taking that one. But had the pharmacist not caught it, I don't think that it wouldn't have been caught as soon as it was. So it seems like this is just better utilizing what pharmacists are already kind of doing. Yeah, you're exactly right. And um, through all the schooling, through the university post-secondary that all the pharmacists go through and the continuous learning that we do on a yearly basis as well to um, when the patient does come in, we use all of that knowledge, take a look at their profile and through PharmaNet, which is a great uh, BC system that allows us to see what the patient is on does not need to be at a London Drugs. They could have gone to a competitor of ours either um, from out of town and they're just moved into uh, the lower mainland at that point. We could actually see it on PharmaNet to see what they've been on before and make sure that there are no drug interactions, um, no duplication of therapy, and to make sure it is actually working for them. And if it isn't, then we can assess them accordingly and actually work with their physicians to make suggested changes or do it on our own and actually just fax the doctor later so that, uh, again, it's in their file when they actually go in to see their doctor. Are there concerns about with the additional uh, things that pharmacists can do as far as as these changes come into place? Are there concerns from pharmacists that this is going to lead to more paperwork and a much heavier workload? Uh, You know what, again, we've been trained to do this. I know that UBC, they actually have um, a clinic lab that specifically is training all the pharmacists coming out to do this. And again, we've been trained for this for quite a while. I know that in speaking with a lot of pharmacists that they are excited about this because of the fact that they'll be able to practice to the full scope of their abilities uh, when this comes about. In terms of, uh, will it add to that? Yeah, on a daily basis, um, it will add, but we're, we're working through that to make sure that we can actually create the environment to safely help the patients ensure that they get timely access to the therapies that they need right away. All right. It seems like this is a good news announcement for both pharmacists and for patients. And I guess it's waiting now to see and waiting for everything just to come in and to be, to be actually happening. Yeah, exactly. And when we first heard the announcement from Minister Dix, um, really want to thank him and the ministry for recognizing the value of the pharmacists and what we could do to help provide the citizens of British Columbia timely and easy access to the healthcare system. All right, Chris Chiu, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. Appreciate it. Great, thanks. Have a great afternoon. Well, an update was put out yesterday by Vancouver Police saying that police officers arrested a man wanted in connection with the assault of a 19-year-old student in late September. And Vancouver Police saying Mohammed Majidpour was taken into custody after a member of the public recognized him. That was from pictures that were actually released by, by VPD. In court documents, we've also seen that Majidpour allegedly attacked the 19 year old student with a pole and also some allegations that he shouted racial slurs during the attack. This is a name that is very familiar with my next guest and joining me to talk a bit more about this is Jamie Coots. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, I think people will remember, I know we've talked to you a couple of times. The first time we talked to you, it was after you had taken some cell phone recordings of a man who was following you. And uh, there was fallout from that. Uh, But we've now learned that that individual is the same person who was just arrested in this case. What did you think or what went through your mind when you heard that, uh, that Mohammed Majidpour had been arrested? Um, honestly, my heart goes out to the girl that this was affected to, but I'm I'm not overly surprised. This was obviously a dangerous individual when, you know, the long list of um, criminal charges came up after what had happened with um, me. And so it's it's sad, but I'm not surprised. Were you surprised at all that he was out and not being held in custody? Yeah, um, I'm absolutely shocked. I mean, like, when what had happened with me, they decided to stay the charges. And I believe nothing really came of it. They just put him on probation. And um, he ended up breaking probation quite a few times. And and actually, nothing came of it. And when you first made the recording, obviously, you didn't know anything about this individual, but you knew enough that you you didn't feel safe. You felt like you were being followed. And I, I remember talking to you back then when that happened. Can you remind us again, what happened that day when you made that recording? Yeah, of course. Um, I was walking. I was actually headed home, um, walking back from a store I'd just done a little bit of shopping and I could feel the presence of somebody walking behind me so after a couple of minutes I stepped off to the path to let him pass um, and he stopped with me and I just told him that he was walking too close and he just continued to stare at me um, so at that point I was like okay, okay whatever and continued to walk and then I realized that he was aggressively following me at this point. He was trying really hard to keep up with me. Um, the quicker I walked, the quicker he would walk. I would walk in weird patterns. He'd continue to follow. And so at that point, I decided, you know what, maybe I'll scare off this guy by pulling out my phone and recording him. Um, and I did that and nothing changed. And, and he just kept, uh, and if I'm remembering it correctly, uh, you kept recording him. And then how did it end? Yeah. It ended um, after I'd done a couple laps of the same um, blocks. I just was thinking in my head, where can I go where there's a lot of people? Um, Along the way, I tried to go into a couple different stores, but my brain told me, what if I stop and the door's locked or I can't get, get in or whatever. So I didn't even want to take that chance. Instead, I decided to walk to the nearest skate park um, where I knew there was a whole bunch of people crowded. Right. Okay. And I remember as well that when that happened, the, the it was kind of resolved in that, I, if I'm recalling correctly, he he entered a guilty plea in charges that were not related to what happened to you. And like you said, they're, they're, the, this, the um, charge related to what happened to you was stayed, but he was given a year probation for the other unrelated charges. Did you feel at the time that that was appropriate or you felt okay with that? Um, I felt it was a little bit unfair, but like, as I said before, it's kind of obvious that this individual is going to come up again. Um, and them deciding to stay the charges just means that the case with this 19-year-old girl is going to be stronger. 
Do, do you get the sense or what are your thoughts when, when taking things seriously? Because I, I know as well, when you posted that video, uh, there were, was obviously a lot of support. There were other people, though, that were questioning it and questioning the seriousness of it. We now, as we know, he's been arrested in connection with this attack with a pole on a 19-year-old female student. And what are your thoughts then on, on how seriously these types of cases or these types of offenses are taken? I mean, like, things keep happening in Vancouver. I'm seeing it every day on social media. And my only thought is I don't think it's being taken serious enough because there's a reason criminals aren't scared to be doing these things. Um, There's very little to no punishment happening. And, I mean, like, as a woman, I I don't feel safe anymore in Vancouver. It's it's gotten progressively worse um, since the COVID shutdowns. And do you still walk in the area or walk downtown and and spend time in downtown Vancouver? More so downtown. My area town is a little bit rougher. um, But since speaking with you last, I have gotten a car. (laughs) So I definitely spend a lot more time driving. Right. And and I know it's it's we can laugh at it. And sometimes you just have to do that for sure. But yeah. like you said, when you're saying you don't feel safe, that's something that we're hearing from so many people as well. Yeah. And and I mean, here you are, you, you had this happen to you, you, you were you, you knew what to do and, and to listen to your instinct and to get out of a, a dangerous situation. But you're right, we keep seeing these attacks, random attacks on strangers that come out of nowhere. And it just you're, you're certainly not the only one who's out there saying we don't feel safe. Yeah, yeah. It's it's sad and it's scary and I really hope some changes are going to happen soon. In this particular case as well, the the fact that he has been arrested again, um, are you hopeful that it will be taken more seriously given given his history? And again, he's not been convicted of this, this uh, attack on the 19-year-old, but he was arrested as a suspect. But are you hopeful that, that because this has happened and given his history that it will be taken a bit more seriously? Um, I, I'm obviously very hopeful, but of course the man had already had a long list of charges the first go round, and there's a reason why council did what they did. Obviously they weren't able to hold him for whatever, um, legal reasons, which I, I'm not aware of. Um, and I'm just hoping that this time there, there is enough to hold him, but I really have no idea. I, it feels like, um, whatever system we're using is, is, is not working right now because people are continuously being let out on bail. All right. Jamie, I want to thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. I so appreciate you making the time for us. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Well, it is a big weekend for a lot of people planning a Thanksgiving dinner or a Thanksgiving meal on whatever day of the weekend you might be doing that. A lot of people will be going with a traditional turkey, so we thought we'd take a little time to talk food safety. And joining us is Lorraine McIntyre, food safety specialist for the BC Centre for Disease Control. Lorraine, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me on the show, Jill. I would imagine good uh, kind of things to follow all of the time when cooking, but especially with so many people putting together probably a larger meal than they normally would this weekend. Let's let's, uh, talk about doing it safely, and we'll start with turkey. So if people are cooking a turkey, what do they need to know about cooking a turkey and doing it in a safe way? 
Uh, well, first it starts with purchasing the turkey and whether it's fresh or frozen. Um, it, it can take quite a while to thaw a frozen bird. And so we do recommend that be done in the refrigerator. Whether it's fresh or frozen, please put a tray underneath so that if any juices leak out of that shrink wrap packaging, they're caught. And and that's really one of our key messages is that um, we've learned over the years that when people um, take that turkey out of the packaging, uh, they'll often put it in the sink and rinse it. And, of course, there's bacteria on the turkey that can cause foodborne illness, salmonella and campylobacter. And a lot of times when uh, people rinse the bird, that'll splash juices around the kitchen, especially if it gets onto surfaces or foods, like maybe you have a salad right next to it. And that's where we're really concerned about contamination or cross-contamination of foods. So we would ask people, uh, if you can, just don't rinse the bird at all. You can pat it dry with paper towels, or maybe you want to use a a tea towel and put it in the laundry afterwards. That's fine, too. Um, And always... You know, always wash your hands after handling raw meat of any kind, especially your your raw turkey. Um, and oh, there's all kinds of other messages, but I'll pause there. <laughs> no, that's a, it's a good one for sure. Because is there any benefit then? People might be rinsing the turkey, thinking you need to do that or you should do that to get the bacteria off the bird. You really don't. Once you put it in the oven and cook it to the proper internal temperature, which is 74 Celsius or higher, so uh, that's 165 Fahrenheit for folks that speak Fahrenheit, um, then that bacteria is gone. For myself, I love to brine my turkey. I always brine my turkey, but first I'll thaw it completely in the fridge. Uh, I can also thaw it in the sink um, uh in cold water, but I'll fill the sink up with water first before I put the bird in so things don't splash around. And and if you do make a brine, make sure it's cooled completely before you put the bird in the brine. Otherwise, um, you know, if it's too warm, if the brine is warm, then you're just allowing those salmonella and campylobacteria to grow up, and you don't want that. Right. And what is the benefit? Is it a, a much safer way of doing it to put the turkey in the, the fridge, even though it takes a lot longer to thaw it? Is it just better to thaw it at a colder temperature? Um, it's, it's Yes. But, but really when you, well, as you know, if you put anything, if you take it out of the fridge and, and put it on the counter, the outside will get much warmer before the inside gets warm. And so what happens is that you're just going to, the bacteria that are on the outside of the surface of the bird will have a chance to grow up into, you know, high enough numbers that it's much more easily to have this cross-contamination and, and it can get on your hands and on the counter. And yeah, so thawing in the fridge, um, if it's below uh, four degrees Celsius or, or uh, 40 Fahrenheit. Life begins at 40. I never understood what that meant when I first started. But uh, it, uh, bacteria won't grow at those lower temperatures. So that's why we always say thaw in the fridge. All right. I did not know that that phrase. What a useful way to remember that as well. Uh, yes. When you talk about the bacteria perhaps splashing or getting on other surfaces, how much is, is needed or is it not very much at all as far as how much could actually cause contamination and could cause illness? 
Um, one droplet. Honestly, it doesn't take uh, very much bacteria uh, to get into foods that can cause illness uh, because it can grow on the food. So once it, it hits something good that it likes to eat that too, so it'll grow up into higher numbers. Um, so we do talk about washing your hands, but also uh, we talk a lot about cleaning and sanitizing, right? Don't use the same cutting board for raw meat as you would for your fresh vegetables or your fruits. So um Making a sanitizing solution is really easy. You just need, uh, everyone knows this now, but you just need a little bit of bleach. So a teaspoon in a liter or a tablespoon in, in basically a jug of milk in a gallon. And and that's enough to, you know, once you clean your your surfaces and your knives or whatever you're using, then you can just use that afterwards to sanitize your counters or your sinks or, or uh, whatever you need to. All right. And is it mainly the turkey or, or whatever bird, I guess, people might be cooking for Thanksgiving dinner if, if people are doing that? Is that the main uh, thing where things can go wrong or as far as bacteria growth and causing illness? Oh, I'm so glad you asked me that because uh, there was a couple things I wanted to mention. And salmonella and campylobacter, yes, they're present in turkey, but they're present in all kinds of poultry. So if you're doing a duck or if you're doing a chicken, even eggs, you know, can have those, uh, can have salmonella at least on the, in the inside of the egg. So we always recommend to cook things to at least 74 Celsius. That's 165 Fahrenheit or hotter. And the other thing that I get concerned about um, and that we've seen a lot of, you know, foodborne illnesses in the past is the way that people cool things. So although um, cooking to 74 will kill the bacteria, some bacteria form a hard spores um, and and uh, cooking won't kill those. So the only way to control them is to keep them cold. So that's why we say cool your leftovers within two hours and put them in the fridge. So gravies and stuffings and things like that, uh, those are the ones where those bacteria can grow up if they're left out too long. So um, yeah, please make sure you, uh, after your wonderful meal, pack up all your leftovers and put them in the fridge. And that's a good tip or good advice, or I suppose a good reminder, because I think it can be easy too. You've put so much work and time into this great dinner. Everybody maybe eats a little bit more than you were planning on it. And it can be tempting to just go sit down after dinner and say, oh, I'll deal with that later. But you've got that two hour window. Yes, yes. And and I do talk about using the probe tip thermometer. Please, um, get the right tools for your kitchen. You know, go get a probe tip thermometer if you don't have one. Don't guess. You All you have to do is put that in the thigh, or, or if you're doing a stuffing in a turkey, put it right in the middle of the turkey. Make sure you get up to temperature. You don't have to guess then. You know. And the same with your fridge. So people often ask me, Lorraine, how long should I keep my leftovers? And I always say, how cold is your fridge? If you don't know how cold your fridge is, I would recommend getting a thermometer for your fridge too. Make sure that the setting is cold enough and you should be able to keep your leftovers for up to a week. All right. I know I shouldn't admit this, but I think it's okay. So my fridge is 38. Oh, that's good. Oh, yeah, that's all right. below Phew. 40, right? So <laughs> life begins at 40 and that's that's 40 Fahrenheit is equivalent to 4 Celsius. So that's good. Okay. Good. I'm glad I passed the test on, on live radio. That would have been really embarrassing if my if my fridge had been in a danger danger zone. Um, you mentioned the stuffing in the turkey. That's one that often comes up, whether or not it's safe to to cook the stuffing right in the bird. Is there a, a general thought on that? 
Uh, I I cook the stuffing in my bird every year, twice a year, because I cook turkey at Thanksgiving and Christmas. The, the important thing is to make sure it comes up to temperature. It will take longer to cook your turkey um, if it's stuffed, uh, and a lot of people prefer the flavor of stuffing if it's cooked outside of the bird. I, I know I've talked to many chefs that say they prefer the flavor of the turkey without the stuffing in it, um, but honestly, from a from a, my point of view, from a food safety point of view, as long as things are at the right temperature, then you know you're okay. So even if you do check the temperature of the breast or the thigh, often that'll read, you know, more than 74. It might read 80 Celsius, but the stuffing inside could still only be at 50. So do check that as well with and- your probe tip thermometer. All right. It sounds like if somebody was going to make one investment to to ensure better food safety, a thermometer to be checking this rather than going by the temperature on the oven or time and what you think it is would be a good investment. Those are all good guidelines, but we always, you know, know. You want to know. I was thinking about this the other day. I remember, I know this is a silly story, but um, I had a VW car, my very first car, and it didn't have a gas gauge, and I was I was forever forgetting to fill it up with gas. I ran out of gas a lot. So it's much better to have the tool that you need to, to check the temperature. <laughs> that is a, that's a good way of looking at it and remembering it. Uh, Lorraine, have we covered off the main ones, or is there anything else about food safety and cooking you want to make sure uh, you get across to people? No, just a reminder, you know, wash your hands. Always wash your hands, keep things cold, put them in the fridge, cook to the right temperature. It's all the same messages, but it's always a good reminder for folks. All right. And enjoy your Thanksgiving. Have a <laughs> yeah. great weekend, everybody. All right. G- great advice going into the long weekend. Lorraine, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Thanks, Jill. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, that is the music of Canadian pop artist Alexis Lin. And this was music or is music that came out of a time of reflection for many. But Alexis Lin went a little bit further than a lot of us and put all of that into her new album, which is called Real Talk. It is available now and it has already been streamed by hundreds of thousands of people. Well, joining us to talk more about that is Alexis Lynn, Canadian pop star from the Caldwell First Nation. Alexis, thank you so much for taking some time with us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, it must be so exciting to see how many people are streaming this and listening to this. Tell us a little bit about the inspiration and how the album came together. Yeah, it's been really amazing. Um, I started writing this um, album in during the pandemic in 2020 and at first I really didn't realize I was writing an album honestly um I had written the first couple of songs and I kind of realized it was becoming this cohesive project that all had the same theme and I had always really wanted to write um, a cohesive and conceptual project um so it kind of really came together naturally um and it was a really really great process I think the uh pandemic gave me some time to be very introspective because I think you know we all had a lot of time on our hands um, but it allowed me to, you know, face some things that you're often able to ignore in everyday life. Um, so I was able to write some really vulnerable music and, um, yeah, it all came together really, I'm really proud of it. And, um, yeah, I recorded it all during the pandemic as well, which was an experience in and of itself. 
Um, but yeah, I'm really glad that it's out with the world and that I'm able to share it with everybody. At what point did you realize, like you say, you didn't even realize at first that you were writing a song or putting an album together. At what point did you realize, oh, wait a minute, I've got something here that, that this could make a great album? Yeah, I think it was after I had written the first couple songs. And I, again, I wasn't meaning to write an album. And I think it was after I wrote House on Fire that I kind of realized I was like, oh, these songs are all about mental health. And I was like, this could be an album. This, it's kind of each song is its own individual story. But also the album is now curated in a way that's meant to be listened to um, from start to finish and be one long story. So I kind of realized that the songs that I were writing were all um, related to one long journey and that I had always wanted to write a conceptual album, so it was something that really fell into place for me. Was it difficult putting those feelings or putting those thoughts into lyrics and recording them, knowing that you were going to put it out there for, for people to listen to and for, for others to kind of get what is really an intimate look on, on your past or some of your thoughts? Um, yeah, definitely. I think being an artist, that's always kind of one of the interesting struggles that comes along with it is having people um, like being able to have such an intimate look on your life. And there were a couple of songs that I really wasn't sure if I was going to put out. Um, Anna is one of them. I wrote it about um, my struggle with an eating disorder with anorexia. And I after I wrote it, I really wasn't sure if I wanted someone to hear it. But um, it was also a song that I thought I would have needed at that time. So I thought, you know, if we can help somebody else or if someone else can relate to it or feel seen, then that's what it's all about, really, for me. That's amazing to hear that as well, because it would have been, you could have easily written it for yourself and kept it to yourself. But to be able to mm-hmm. look and, and see that others could benefit, what a great thing to do. Yeah. Thank you. What, what, how would you describe the music? We heard a little bit of one of the songs from, from the album right there. How would you describe the music? Like you said, it's kind of one one long story that, that from start to finish throughout all of the songs, but how else would you describe it? Yeah, I feel like the album, it, it is kind of heavy content-wise, but it again, at the end of the day, it's a pop album, so the songs are mostly upbeat, and um, it's pop, and it has influences of R&B and hip-hop, and there's a lot of different um, underlying genres. Um, and yeah, the songs are very raw and honest, but they're also fun and, um, it depends really how you listen to it because I think the content can be heavy, but I think they're also fun pop songs at the same time. So I think it gives kind of a duality in that sense. And was that difficult to, to kind of balance that, the seriousness of the subject with the, the poppiness, I guess, of the music? I think so. I think it also, um, allows though kind of a guide in a sense because I think you're able to for me at least I'm able to talk about some things that might be difficult to talk about in everyday life um, face-to-face kind of behind the guise of music and the kind of behind this wall of it being a song Um, so I think you're able to often get a lot more vulnerable and a lot more honest um, than maybe you would feel uh, ready to do in in just talking to someone. Right. Uh, How long have you been making music? Um, I started writing when I was 16, but I started releasing music in about 2019. And and how was it? Do you remember kind of when you first started releasing music and putting music out there? Yeah, it was. It just really changed everything for me. It, it became um, it became this thing where I was like, oh, I can do this. I can actually just put music out, and you know, like someone might listen to it. And I think it really um, catapulted a lot of what I do now. And being able to share that with people is just it's so cool and it's really fun. What part of it do you like the best? Is it the writing and the the beginning and the planning part? Or is it the actual recording and putting it together? Or or is it when it's all done and you put it out there and you get to kind of see how people react? 
I think it's all of it. I really love the writing as a songwriter. I love the writing process and kind of seeing that magic happen. Um, I also really love like hearing the finished version of the song because there's so many changes and stages it goes through as you're writing from writing to recording it to releasing it. Um, so that's always really rewarding to see. And I also really love the visual aspects. I love being a part of creating the album art, creating the videos and like all that kind of stuff is really enjoyable for me as well. And when you look at your past and what what you've what your life experiences are, and I mentioned off the top that you're also a member of the Caldwell First Nation, how has your past or how is your past kind of influencing, or how is that part of your music? Yeah, I think, uh, someone who my, myself and my family have grown up outside of our culture, unfortunately. So, I for me, it's been really important to reconnect and reconcile, and I think. Um, storytelling has been one of my big ways of doing that. I've always felt very connected to um, storytelling and telling stories in my own way of my life and the other lives around me. And that's something I find really expressive and um, a really authentic art form for me. So I've been trying to reconnect in that way. Um, And I think that's really shaped a lot of my music is a lot of my songs are really based around narratives um, which not all music is, and I have some very fun songs too, but I think my favorite kind of song. And sorry, your phone cut out just as your, your favorite kind is what kind of songs? Is writing a very narrative okay. um, story-like song, yeah. All right. Do you have, um, did you get inspiration or do you have uh, a particularly favorite other musicians or songwriters that, that you get inspired by? For sure. I listen to all sorts of music, but um, one of my all-time favorite artists is Amy Winehouse. Um, I think she such, was such a authentic and raw artist and songwriter, and her style of writing has really inspired how I had started writing music. Um, I think today, like, I listen to every kind of genre, but Julia Michaels is another big writer that I really look up to. Um, Ariana Grande is an artist that I look up to, and I listen to, honestly, almost everything. So I try to draw inspiration from all sorts of music. Wow, definitely uh, some big names. Uh, interesting when you say mm-hmm. talk about Amy Winehouse, because also mm-hmm. uh, a very sad and tragic story uh, there as well. What, what about her music or her lyrics kind of drew you to her? I think it was the honesty, and she was so raw and really authentic. And I think she wasn't afraid to say things that, you know, might not always be perceived in um, how you want people to perceive them. You know, I think there's room for a lot of interpretation. And I think she was just so unapologetically herself that that was really inspiring to me and her lyrics were in her song content was could be dark but it was so honest and I think that's something that I've always strived for as a writer and you mentioned uh, you started uh, putting music out there uh, a few years ago and this Mm -hmm. album doing so so well with people streaming it and listening to it Uh, what's next I have a single called Something to Prove that's coming out very soon. I'm really excited for that. And I've just been working on a ton of new music as well for the new year, hopefully. All right. Well, we can't wait to see and hear what you put out there next and listen to that. Alexis, thank you so much for taking the time and for joining us to talk more about this today. Thank you so much for having me.